Welcome to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast with your hosts, Richard Hill and Matthew Darlitz. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. I'm Matthew Darlitz, Editor-in-Chief of the Science of Psychotherapy magazine, here with Managing Editor Richard Hill. Yes, here I am on a. It's a bright and sunny day, which is uh, which is absolutely funny. Blue skies and the the plants are saying, "Could you water me?" That's <laughs> 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 no, great. It's great. It's nice. So, so northern hemisphere, you're sort of sliding uh, into fall. You know, coming up in a in a few days, and we're sliding into spring. So the world is doing its uh, its next little moment of season change. Very exciting, except for those people who think it's on the twenty first. Ah, dear, it's all that confusing. <laughs> <laughs> so, Richard, we are off to Canada. Yeah. Oh, here's interesting. Here's a really interesting one today. Mm. Tell us a bit about uh, about this fabulous fellow. Okay, we're going across to talk to a Dr. Stephen Taylor. He is a professor and clinical psychologist in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver in Canada. And his work focuses on anxiety disorders and related clinical conditions and on the psychology of pandemics. Yes, that's his new book, uh, yes. named d- distinctly "The Psychology of Pandemics." But um, he's written twenty books. He has. He's he's authored over three hundred scientific publications and and over twenty books. It's just incredible. I mean, we've I've done one with you, Richard, and yeah. uh, boy, uh, that, and we're exhausted. <laughs> absolutely, I can't imagine doing twenty. But I'm just so fascinated at the depth of of wonder that's that's out in the in the in the marketplace in the world that um that you know that we haven't even scratched the surface of so you know i really yeah. hope that we we just keep uh, these people give us our time and we're very grateful for stephen for giving us our time so uh, right. we better not take up too much of it and, uh, get straight onto him but just quickly, we are very grateful for your time um, tuning in and listening to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. And if you do like what we're doing here, please support us by becoming a member of the scienceofpsychotherapy.net. That's our academy site. It's uh, It's got an amazing uh, volume of information to help you as a mental health professional. Oh, something like a thousand hours of, of material. And, we do, and we've categorized all these up into usable, readable and uh, accessible units to, to follow your intention. Use that search bar. I've had people saying, where's that course? I say, use that search bar. <laughs> okay, brilliant. All right, let's go across to Canada and talk to Dr. Stephen Taylor. Dr. Stephen Taylor, thank you so much for joining us here on the Science of Psychotherapy. So great to meet you. Thanks very much, Matt. Nice to meet you and Richard as well. Yes, yes, I'm here as always uh, and fabulously uh, excited. I mean, the, the, obviously the title, very, uh, uh, you know, the psychology of pandemics, very, very here and now. And a lot of people have, you know, drawn their attention to this thing because it is so consuming. But there's a lot more in this book. There's, there's a lot in this book. So we'll try and see if we can get through, but a lot of help for actual therapists. And what do you think, mate? We basically, I think we probably just need, can we give a little bit of a background to, yep. you know, what got you into writing this book, you know, the, some of the directions? We've had a few words about your, uh, your professional career, but uh, some of your own personal comments. Yeah, uh, I started, well, my background is in, um, uh, my research and clinical background is in broadly in anxiety disorders, post-traumatic stress disorder, OCD, so anxiety and related disorders including health anxiety, you know, by that I mean excessive health anxiety, what used to be called hypochondriasis, 
in the olden days. Anyway, uh, 2018, I, I started coming across newspaper reports interviewing uh, historians of medicine and virologists and epidemiologists because it was a centenary of the Spanish flu, the so-called Spanish flu. Ah. And um, so they were interviewing these people and about the next pandemic and they were all predicting another pandemic was coming and they said, look, these aren't once-in-a-lifetime experiences. These are more common than people recognise. And I got interested in that. So um, I started reading around it and the more I read about it, the more I realised, wow, psychology is hugely important in pandemics because we know all this now. But back in 2018, I thought, wow, psychology is hugely important, uh, but the research and the clinical work is all scattered. You know, you have uh, vaccination hesitancy, you have uh, anxiety disorders. No one had ever put it together. So I I thought, well, pandemics, uh, psychology is hugely important because they influence how people react and how whether they adhere to social distancing or vaccines or how distressed they become. I realised no one had ever put it together into a single volume. So I did, and I sent it to my publisher in um, early 2019, and he wow. reject he rejected it. He said, <laughs> this is the guy who's been publishing my books for twenty years. He said, "Well, it's an interesting idea, but no one's going to want to read this." And I felt right. really <laughs> crest, crestfallen and dejected because I thought, "No, this is uh, this is hugely important." So I found another publisher, and it was published about a month before COVID nineteen broke out. So uh, I knew a pandemic was coming, but I didn't realize it was coming that soon. Wow, this is like, this is like a guy who rejected the Beatles because no one, no one's going to be interested in four four bloke bands. So, 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 so what were conversations like with your original publisher uh, after the fact? Uh, we, 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 get, we get on fine. Um, I, 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 I bugged him a little bit about it, but not, not too much. Okay. Well, it's, it's not often the author can go back to the publisher and say, well, I told you so. But well done. But how fascinating, Stephen, that, that you were, thinking this is this is a relevant topic um, before there was this huge pandemic uh, in existence because some of the one of the things that I, I keep hearing from a sort of in general public is oh no one could have expected this and, and from politicians as well no one could, and, and you're just a, a perfect example of the fact that the science the area of science and uh, was well aware of this but even in psychology uh, in, in in the mental uh, uh, basis of us, this idea of how are we going to pull ourselves together? Maybe one of the of the things, uh, because it's really nice, you, you sort of start chapter one with what I think is a, a pretty reasonable question. You know, what is a pandemic? And from this psychological point of view, how can we describe, because, you know, most of our people are therapists, so when, when they're talking about the pandemic, it's not uh, like the technical term of saying it's a disease that, traverses countries. It's actually something more than that, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, um, and there are different kinds of pandemics. Now, put simply, uh, a pandemic is a global outbreak of disease that spreads everywhere. And it's got to have some degree of seriousness to it as well. Um, otherwise, the WHO wouldn't um, bother defining it as a pandemic. The, the, the definition is, is arbitrary. How many countries does it have to spread to? Well, most of them. Um, what kind of infections do you need in the countries? Well, it has to be community-based infection, that is, infection spreading within a community rather than infection being brought in. So it's a kind of a fuzzy concept, but it's clear enough to, to set the stage for looking at the psychology of pandemics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it is also 
I mean, there's the disease that spread, but there's also ideas that accompanied it that, that spread, which is, of course, where we're getting more into the psychology, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Uh, uh, there's a, a huge parallel between conspiracy theories and viruses, in fact. Um, conspiracy oh. theories... Oh. <laughs> don't get me started. Conspiracy... <laughs> yeah. There's a chapter on this too. Yeah. I, I've been I've been working on the next book, and it, it, the amount of material is just um, boggling. But um, conspiracy theories, just like a virus, they need a host. They need a conspiracy theorist to defend the theory. And just like viruses, conspiracy theories mutate and reassort themselves. And so, what we're seeing today, the conspiracy theories around COVID are recycled old conspiracy theories. So yeah, the uh, the spreading of uh, fear and and beliefs and attitudes is very much like the spreading of disease. This goes back to Dawkins and and, and his to memes uh, when he was doing yeah. that, which then was you know Susan um, Blakemore did uh, some fabulous right. work on. So so this idea of 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 an idea that travels across hosts. Uh, oh wow! Yeah, really interesting. Mm. So now we're we're in a uh, sort of a unique position than we were sort of in previous times with social media and the way that we communicate. And so, can you talk to us a little bit about how that plays into the psychology of pandemics? Mm-hmm. Uh, in a very real way, this is the first pandemic in the era of social media. I mean, there have been other pandemics. In fact, there have been more pandemics than most people realise. There's been about 20 in the last century. But we had uh, we had uh, two pandemics in 2009, the Zika virus pandemic and the H1N1 so-called swine flu pandemic. But even then, the, the internet wasn't as develop, developed as it is now. And now we're getting in in a fuller form social media and the 24-7 news cycle and the global digital interconnectedness of the planet makes this pandemic uh, different in many ways from previous pandemics. Different in one way in that everything that happens gets sped up or or, um, it's bigger and faster than what it would have been. So just to give you an example, the the anti-mask movement that we're seeing today, I mean, that's virtually global and there are recurrent waves of protest and that's been fueled by social media, um, of course, the political aspect of it as well. But but that that social media has fueled it. Now, compare that to 1919 during the Spanish flu. The Anti-Mask League was formed back then for the same reasons today. These people said, hey, you're not the boss of me, you're not telling me what to do, and I don't think masks work. So that group got together in San Francisco and they formed a protest movement. That fizzled out. It lasted a few months. They had one big meeting and that was it. They didn't have social media. You know, it's one thing to go up putting ads in newspapers or flyers on on storefront windows, that doesn't get the traction that social media gets. So this is a reason why um, conspiracy theories and the anti-movements are getting a lot more traction, a lot more attention than they would have got in previous years. Is, it, is that sort of the, because the like going back to the 1919 one, 1918-19, uh, so the, the absence of substance, so the, the, the conspiracy theory doesn't prove itself, um, and so, therefore, you know, peters out. But but actually, the social media is the substance, um, mm-hmm. regardless of the realities or truths or efficacy or science or anything. Mm-hmm. The medium yeah. is the message uh, exactly. on McLuhan stuff. Marshall McLuhan said it correctly. Just to give you another example, um, in 1919, in the New York Times, 
The health authority there um, mentioned a conspiracy theory that he'd heard, he thought that had some truth to it. And the theory was that German agents were arriving in Manhattan under the cover of darkness in U-boats. So they beach there, they surface their submarines, get out little rowboats, row into Manhattan, and then run around through the saloons and cinemas distributing virus everywhere. Wow. Right? Right. So it sounds like the um, flu as bioweapon. And in every pandemic that I've studied, we've come across the flu as the organism as bioweapon conspiracy theory. Now, what that makes, makes that different then versus today, this conspiracy theory was written about by an authority in a leading periodical, the New York Times, it essentially disappeared. There were occasional mentions of this conspiracy theory because, uh, you know, the, the flu was in during World War One, so the Germans, the uh, US was at war with uh, the Germans. It got a little bit of attraction and then it kind of died out. It really didn't influence people that much. Contrast that to today where um, President Trump getting up and calling uh, COVID-19 the Wuhan flu or the Chinese virus, that just stoked racism and created um, uh, unprecedented levels of, of discrimination and racism. So so therapists, there's a, you know, Matt and I were uh, talking about this before, that all this stuff, as you say, that we, we could go on for a million years about the, um, the the humanistic aspect of it, but mm. but uh, our poor therapists uh, sitting in their room with someone who comes in, and and I've also deal with it with some of my supervisees uh, as well. What are some of the ways you've talked about that in the book? Oh, oh that's quite evolved. Uh, what, what I was talking about in the book was I uh, pointed out that we're going to have to move away from the luxury of uh, sitting in your own office and seeing patients one-to-one. Um, that's not going to work for two reasons. One is there's just too many patients to be seen during a pandemic. Too many people are distressed. Some have clinical conditions. Some are more in the adjustment realm. Too many people scattered too far outside of major metropolitan areas. And, of course, there's the social distancing component. So we, we had to move to an online format. And I think people are still doing that today in a, um, uh, in a hybrid sort of model, a mix of in-person and uh, telepsychiatry, if you like. But that's, that's something that's had to come up. And, of course... Uh, Clinicians are facing all kinds of other challenges. You, you probably uh, know what it's like to do therapy over Zoom. It is a, a little, it is a little different. You, you can't pick up the cues from the patient. You can't really watch their body language. You can't see the walk into the office. Is the patient psychomotorically, uh, motorically slowed, for example? Do they smell of alcohol? Are they dishevelled? You know, I can't see half of those cues on the screen, but it's better than nothing. So I'm yeah. primarily focusing on the on the audio track. Yeah. Now, uh, so we talked about social media. We're getting bombarded with all sorts of narratives that obviously can cause stress and anxiety. What other things are we, uh, are we seeing as therapists dealing with people's mental well-being? What we're seeing at the moment, we're, we're in a state of uh, so-called pandemic fatigue. Uh, and it's because... The mental health consequences of pandemics are largely due to lockdown, Uh, not so much infection. Although people who do get infected and who become seriously ill, of course, they are at risk for developing various problems like post-traumatic stress disorder. But it's lockdown that affects more people because we're, we're, you know, we're sociable creatures as socialization or sociability is etched into our genome and we're told to inhibit that, to stay inside, to stay isolated, and that wears over time. Lockdown or social distancing 
uh, it's not a long-term strategy. It's a, it's a short-term, well, if you like, a, a circuit breaker to, mm. to reduce the spread of infection. So, unfortunately, uh, we're stuck with um, social distancing lockdown as the best method we have for pandemic contagion, but it wears people down. And I think that's mm. some of the bigger things that at least in, here in, in Vancouver that we're seeing. We're seeing a lot of people out there in the community. They might not have DSM or ICD diagnosable disorders, but they're suffering from recurrent anxiety low mood and irritability and so suddenly yeah. I'm seeing signs around the stores please be kind please don't yeah. be rude to the shopkeepers if you're yeah. frustrated so uh, there's, there's a lot more irritability there um, and, and of course we're, we're seeing that in our patients as well yeah. Yeah, so we're hearing a lot of reports about increased suicide rates, increased depression, um, domestic violence increasing. So there's a whole range of issues that are cropping up here because directly because of lockdown. You're right. The suicide is a really um, interesting and important one. There's been a huge amount of data and research done on suicide during COVID. There is yet to be a clear picture to emerge there's mm -hmm. all kinds of variability. We know that depression has uh, increased, particularly over the course of 2020, over lockdown, but it's not clear whether there has been an increase in suicidal uh, attempts. There's, there's an interesting thing that, that I, I haven't done any work on it, but uh, I do, I've done a lot of um, my master's thesis was in suicide and various other things, so it's been something very, very uh, strong with me. And um, I, I haven't seen a great deal of change in statistics, but I have seen some change anecdotally in motivations. So there have been some things that the notes have, have clearly shown that they can't stand, you know, they can't bear the, the, the current crisis is doing it. But I've also uh, had some anecdotal uh, discussion of people who are saying it gave them something to fight. And there's actually people who were suicidal who, uh, you know, shifted their, their, their frame to a little bit more something, which, which uh, so there may be this double-edged sword. Yeah. Exactly, Richard. I agree with you entirely. There's, there's another aspect to this I think that's important for clinicians to, to know. Historically, suicides have spiked when there have been masses of unemployment, particularly among working-age young people. Uh, the Great Depression in the 1930s is yeah. the classic example. But if, even if you go back to the Spanish flu, uh, at the end of the flu, 1920, 1921, there was a minor economic recession, and that was associated with an increase in suicidal behaviour, uh, particularly oh. in communities that were subjected to lockdown. Now, the reason I mention this is the IMF um, last year published this gloom and doom report predicting a Great Depression after COVID that would be worse than any yeah. that we'd ever experienced. I, I think there was an exaggeration, but uh, it is an important point. If we come out of this pandemic and there is an economic recession, um, we as clinicians should be extra diligent in assessing suicidal ideation because yeah. it has characteristically spiked before and it's hard to predict suicide at the best of times but yeah. um, sudden unemployment of a working age individual who has responsibilities or a family to support that's going to be a flag that I would be careful in pursuing. Yes yeah. and in, in Australia especially you know we have a um, sort of the backbone of the economy is small business and um, yeah. small businesses are suffering terribly because of yeah. uh, restrictions. Mm. Absolutely yes. And individual government behaviours are part of it because uh, uh, I, I imagine that 
that because because this is the difficulty with with something like this is you have just current uh, current events, so it's almost like a counselling process. You just you're, you're you're dealing people with current events, but then of course these are tapping into to older um, unresolved issues, so they're for more the therapeutic type of event. So do do we need to be aware of that, trying to find that distinction? Is that a distinction of, of what's just the, the here and now? Because people say, I'm anxious about COVID. I'm going, well, yeah, so am I. Uh, nothing weird about that. Uh, but but then they start saying, and this, you know, this, and then up comes the, the old story. Is this something that therapists need to have some a greater sensitivity to, uh, to the, the here and now and the history, historic stuff? Yes, I think so, because uh, as you pointed out earlier, there's been a range of different reactions to the the pandemic, to COVID-19, and to understand those, we need to understand the the person's situation in the here and now, but we also need to understand the context, the historical context. Uh, For example, in our research, we were finding that the most anxious people, not surprisingly, they have a past history of anxiety or depressive Mm -hmm. disorders or a history of intolerance of uncertainty or excessive health anxiety anxiety. So we, we need to know that we might think otherwise you, you might be mistaken. You might think, oh, I'm just looking at an adjustment disorder. This person is just anxious because of COVID. You need to look at the history. It could be that this is simply another expression of a long-standing disorder. It could be OCD or it could be somatic symptom disorder. It could be anything. Yes, a very good point. So exacerbation of pre-existing mm. yep, issues. Now, now your, your other book, uh, which I, I thought was terrific, and uh, just look at my notes, which is Understanding and Treating Panic Disorder, which, uh, as you're saying, you were dealing with anxiety and panic in bits and pieces. Mm-hmm. And uh, that one, uh, you know, gave highlight in, this, in, the, in the sub-note to that of cognitive behavioural approaches. Uh, do you have a particular uh, uh, recommendation? Do you do you have a particular uh, school like cognitive behavioural that you you find more preferable? What's your attitude towards the uh, the approach? What uh, the, the approach that therapists could or should or or can take? I we've got all these tools which are moderately effective, and there's no magic bullet. And one strategy works well with one patient; one doesn't work so well with another. Uh, they all have the same kind of theoretical rationale. So, uh, I think it's a question of being able to to pick and choose. Sometimes standard Beck-style cognitive therapy is all you need. Sometimes you need to add in something from dialectical behaviour therapy, such as the the, the crisis containment things. And then, of course, um, there's the mindfulness strategies can be helpful and experiential strategies. So I I draw from all the the sorts of tools used by cognitive behavioural therapists to help patients. And this segues really sweetly now into this chapter that that caught my eye, which was the behavioural immune system, you know, Mm -hmm. those capacities within the client. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, Could you expand a bit about um, that idea? Yeah, Uh, it's a really interesting idea. It's the idea that our biological immune system is not enough. It's not going to protect us from microorganisms. It won't protect us from parasites, viruses or bacteria because most of them are too small to see. And so we, we need to have evolved a psychological system for detecting cues to infection, and that's the uh-huh. behavioural immune system. And so it's a system that uh, relies on cues to uh, infection or, or cues to disgust. So bodily secretions, phlegm, saliva, faeces, urine, they trigger disgust reactions. And just like 
anxiety is generally an adaptive emotion or fear. It, it causes us to, to back off and keep ourselves safe. The emotion of disgust is generally an adaptive emotion. It keeps us away from, from putting contaminated things in our mouths, from doing things that only young children would do, like don't put dirt in your mouth or stuff like that. So uh, it's a system of, of detecting cues. And, but this system tends to err on the side of false alarms. And from an engineering perspective, you want a system that's going to err on the side of false alarms because no system is perfect. If I have a smoke alarm in my house that uh, has the opposite, uh, the airs on the side of caution, I could burn to death. So it's better to have some false alarms and be safe. And the same with the behavioural immune system. But that said, there are individual differences in the degree to which that system is activated, uh, and that's called the perceived vulnerability to disease. So some people find they're very readily disgusted or they're very readily made anxious by the sight of um, infection or people who look infected or sickly-looking people. Now, it goes a step further than that. Um, from an evolutionary perspective, we as humans have got infected and got very ill when we've interacted with foreigners, so uh, mm -hmm. the classic example are the European explorers to various continents. Um, I think one of the most dramatic examples is South America. Mm. They, brought, they brought venereal diseases, they brought um, smallpox, they brought uh, influenza. The locals had no uh, experience with these and no pre-existing immunity, wiped them out. So part of this behavioural immune system is almost like a built-in xenophobia that we, when we become anxious about our health, we tend to be wary of strangers. And That's that is, really interesting. That is an adaptive response. But taken to an extreme, it turns into unacceptable things like racism and frank xenophobia. And that, that's expressed by the very, very anxious people, the people who have a, their, their behavioural immune system is in overdrive. They're very frightened of infection and therefore they're very xenophobic and wary of, of strangers, particularly strangers that they've learned to associate with uh, infection. And given um, President, former President Trump's um, yeah. blaming of China, people of Asian ancestry have been targeted out. And, uh, of course, the people who are highly frightened of, of infection are, are, tend to be wary of those individuals. Right. And it wow. sounds like there, there, there has to be like a feedback mechanism in play here as well to increase that angst. Yeah. Yeah, well, that, yeah. that's our, our cognitive um, yeah. evolu evolution is sort of social evolution that we do cognitively where we can yeah. we can take a great idea and really screw it up but but this 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 and of course and now I'm, I'm seeing two things and this is absolutely fascinating this this disgust uh this sort of emotion um uh, it's really making me you know my mind I'm, I'm going all over the place but that because you get that you get disgust of the other and particularly the um, the the suspected other, but also you uh, there's those who get disgust for themselves. So that intrapersonal disgust is that something that therapists need to be really looking out for? Yes, internalized self stigma, internalized discrimination. I mean, that, that's been um, a topic of the research on racism for many, many years now. And, and I think therapists should be looking for that, but probing for it in a, a sensitive and, and tactful manner, because that could be very distressing for someone to have to talk about. But mm. definitely, we should be, be looking for that sort of thing. Mm. Yeah, because I mean, like, my wife has a, a persistent um, sinus issue, which she's had 
you know, most of her life, broke her nose when she was young and so on and so forth. Mm. And she gets pretty pretty annoyed at herself sometimes, you know, like like sometimes I'll say, you know, what am I doing wrong? What are you angry at me for? And and she'll she'll say, No, I'm not angry at you, I'm angry at me. Uh, this this seems to be something uh, that you've just, uh, I, and I'm just thinking of some of my recent patients. I'm thinking, oh wow, that's the that's where the that's what I should have been more sensitive to. So thank you so much, Stephen. That's really really important. Well, I, just on that, I think self-directed anger is something hugely important that we as clinicians have maybe um, forgotten to look at. I mean, back in the 1950s was that psychoanalytic theory that depression was anger turned inwards. Right. So clinicians back then were looking for self-directed anger. I, I think that maybe today we're not looking at as much as we should do self-directed mm. anger, not as an indication of, of depression, but as a phenomena in its own. Right. Mm. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Now, can I just circle back to technology and um, media? Now, one of the sort of common bits of advice that we, we seem to hear is turn off the media because your levels of anxiety is going through the roof, but you're, you're you're watching the news, you're reading all of the posts and everything, which is just continually feeding anxiety. Is that something that uh, you, you see and that you would recommend to sort of turn off that media flow? Um, it's part of the infodemic, as they call it. Um, right. and people are just overwhelmed with information and, and the, the challenge is to figure out which is useful and which is misinformation or even, even fake. Uh, we found in our research that people who spend a lot of time checking for COVID on the internet or the news are having nightmares about it and intrusive thoughts and traumatic stress-like symptoms. Mm. So for people like that, I suggest that they, on the one hand, they need to stay informed. I mean, for example, uh, one example are mask mandates, which up here in Canada are changing all the time. We were without masks two weeks ago and now masks are back. Yeah. So, we're masking mm. up. so obviously we need to stay informed to some extent, but limit your media consumption and, and stick to reputable news sources. Yeah, pick and choose more carefully. Yeah. yeah. Some of my patients have described it as going as like going down a rabbit hole. They'll start off in the morning mm. with their coffee. I'm just going to check the news and one thing leads to another, one hyperlink leads to another. Before, you know, they've gone right down and they're looking at some really scary, probably fake stuff, and they've spent hours doing that and are really agitated. So for those people, I suggest they limit their exposure and don't get your news from social media because it tends to be sensationalized. Now, I've got to just quickly, Matt, just because I've got an ADHD uh, patient who is um, uh, who's doing that. She's rabbit holing uh, just because they get fixated and and off they go. And 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 I've just been saying, turn it off, turn it off. I I, I did some text with her recently. I just actually wrote, turn it off, turn it off about ten times because I thought <laughs> you an ADHD back at it. But but uh, interesting, interesting. Sorry, Matt. I just no. I was just going to say, you know, coming back also to being locked down. You know, people are locked down. They're not going to work. So what are they doing? They're on devices and they're they're. Concerned consuming media um, way more than they would be if they're out working and, you know, doing the usual thing. Yeah. True. So it's understandable that people are spending a lot of time, they're trying to keep themselves or their family safe. It just so happens they get seduced down this rabbit hole and one sensational, fascinating news story after another, before they know it, they're, they're wired and anxious and having nightmares. 
Yeah. Which yeah. is the which is the aim of media. I mean that that is the the, the mechanism the methods they use is to grasp your attention and to uh, to funnel you into uh, into their stuff. So yeah. to, to get ratings. I mean, it, yeah. I think we we need to be a little bit straightforward with our clients too, saying that they're saying, oh yes, but it's so interesting. I said, but that's their job. That's 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 yeah, what that's they do. Right. It's, it's your job to be discerning. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Yes, I agree. Yeah. 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 Now, Stephen, you, uh, you're one of the leaders of Psychology of Pandemics Network, which mm-hmm. sounds fascinating. Could you just give us a little bit of an insight as to what that is all about? Yeah. Um, my colleague, uh, Gordon Asmundson at University of Regina, he and I, Gordon and I have been collaborating for decades now on health anxiety mainly. And when uh, the pandemic was emerging uh, early 2020, Uh, we decided to put a grant together and use the book as a foundation for proposing an ongoing um, set of research to understand the psychology of COVID-19. And we were successful with that application and we've been conducting multiple waves of assessment via the internet on adults from Canada and the United States since early 2020. Uh, We've just collected uh, our fourth wave of data Uh, And so we're using that to try and and understand various aspects of COVID-19 and the psychology around it. Okay, Mm. brilliant. All right. Well, Stephen, as we we sort of wrap up, is there any sort of final thoughts that you would like to tell our listeners? Yes. Clinicians will be seeing disorders for which they have limited experience. Let me just go through the list briefly. We've got long COVID and that chronic fatigue aspect to it, which... It's been difficult to, uh, by the way, people with long COVID don't like people telling them they have chronic fatigue due to all the excess baggage that chronic fatigue has with it. Yes. But, but, but very few clinicians are, are, are experienced in training chronic fatigue. Post-traumatic stress disorder, at least I know in Vancouver where I live, um, most clinicians have very limited experience with PTSD and we that we are seeing cases of PTSD after infection. There's prolonged grief disorder, um, of the people who've been bereaved due to COVID. And that was uh, a fairly common disorder prior to COVID-19. Roughly 10% of bereaved people uh, were thought to have this disorder. Um, it, it involves more than grief counselling. It, it involves uh, one of the treatments involves some kind of exposure therapy, which I've done with patients before, but it requires specialised training. And then you've got OCD and severe forms of health anxiety. Um, so many clinicians will not have had experience with those disorders. That's okay. The, the main thing is that you're able to identify them and assess them and refer on. And there are going to be other disorders that we're going to see for which most clinicians will have had no experience. And I'm talking about um, um, functional uh, neurological disorders. Yes, yes. What, what, what used to be called conversion disorders or conversion hysteria, uh, we're seeing those around the vaccines, people developing neurological um, reactions to the vaccines. And it's, uh, well, the, the way uh, conversion disorders or functional disorders are presented to patients, it's a circuit problem. It's, it's a software, not a hardware problem. But, but they are not uncommon. There's been um, a, a lot of reports in the media of people diagnosing them. Incidentally, it's not new. Mm. Uh, you can go back to all the previous pandemics just about and, and find something similar. 2009 swine flu or, in fact, there have been cases of, of kids being immunised against diphtheria and tetanus developing these conversion sorts of reactions. So we need to be on the lookout for those. Now, they typically involve a multidisciplinary approach. 
I was yeah. going to say, I would yeah. imagine they're already under the, um, you know, they've got a neurologist or whatever, but we, we have to deal with the psychological aspect. And, yeah. and recognise it, as you say. I mean, one of the oh, things yeah. we talk about is, is is we don't expect everybody to know everything. 21st century therapist doesn't need to know it all, but it needs to know about that's right. Exactly, uh, yeah. exactly. And the interesting thing about these functional disorders is the treatments are psychological. Uh, yes. So, so yes. when I see these patients, um, I work with colleagues in, um, in, the, uh, in our neuropsychiatric program in our department, and that, that division contains a mix of neurologists and psychiatrists. So, so when they refer patients to me, I can be reassured that they've been properly assessed for underlying medical conditions. The last thing I want to do is start treating someone who I think has a functional disorder only to discover they have the early stages of MS. Right. Mm. Yeah, of course. Mm. So it is tricky but, but treatable with psychological methods. Yeah. Okay. And, 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 and it's great, that, Stephen, we, we've actually got a, a, a video that we've done a, a you know a presentation from John Arden, who's uh, does a lot of neuroscience, and he's done on long COVID. He did a did a, a six months of work on that. So our subscribers can come in, and that's a great little piece of knowing about. Uh, and and another one that that just was in the top of my head as we were going there is is the the body up stuff. So there's there's heart issues. So there's heart, sinoatrial concerns there. So your your your, your heart. Mm rate and rhythm, which has vagus effects. So there's a bunch That's of these, right. there's a bunch of these things, aren't there? Yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We're all ter- terribly integrated, aren't we? So it, <laughs> all of these physiological things will have a have a mental impact. Yeah. Well, uh, Dr. Stephen Taylor, it's been so great to, well, to discover you and to yeah. find out about your book. Uh, we will point everyone uh, to that book and to resources to your, to your website, but it's been great catching up and uh, thank you for being on the show. Well, thanks very much, Matt and Richard. I really appreciate you having me on your program. Oh, yeah. I, I, we wish we'd all read this in 2019 when it first came out. <laughs> ah, beautiful. All right, then. Thank you. See you later, then. Thanks a lot, okay. guys. Stay safe. Oh, wow. He was so interesting. <laughs> no wonder he's written 20 books. It, uh, right. But th- obviously the book is full of stuff. I mean, if that's what we yeah. got, that was just, uh, you know, getting some of his his area. We tried to focus in on the, on the, the therapeutic aspects, but um, uh, and he's just a really nice guy. Yeah, absolutely. So just a reminder, this is The Psychology of Pandemics, Preparing for the Next Global Outbreak of Infectious Diseases by Dr. Taylor. Now, we will put a, a link in the show notes, so look out for that. And uh, we'll put a link to his website as well, because then you can go off if you want to explore the Psychology of Pandemics network and other things. Oh, and some of his other books. I mean, there's Understanding and Treating Panic Disorder. I mean, fabulous. Right, right. Beautiful. Well, Richard, been fabulous as always. Yep. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. And once again, if you appreciate what we're doing here on the Science of Psychotherapy podcast, please do support us by becoming a subscriber to the scienceofpsychotherapy.net. That's our academy site. That's where we have a whole bunch of course material and just information to get your head around the science of who we are. Indeed, to learn about the about. So all that wonderful stuff, but uh, I guess we've got to go now. All right. Thanks, everybody. And thank you, Richard. We'll catch you next time. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. For more great science, go to thescienceofpsychotherapy.com.